It is another blessed opportunity we have to assemble, to gather, to do so for the purpose of presenting our worship unto the God that made us, and not only made us, but sent His Son that we might live with Him forever. The Word of God sets before us all those facts and truths, and yet as you and I gather every Lord's Day, the church, of course, being faithful to that, has now done that for nearly 2,000 years. And aren't you excited to be a part of that long and extensive history of those dedicated and devoted to the service of God? As you'll notice on the wall to my left, we'll give some thought to the identity of the church this morning. And so I hope that you'll study with me about the interesting feature and character of identity. This opening slide will be one that brings us to consider... Well, I can't get the slide to turn. I may have to get Jonathan to assist me on that one. There we go. Thank you. By way of identity, it seems interesting to appreciate we're all rather familiar with the thought of what it means to discuss identity. After all, we live in a time when identity theft is very serious. Someone who gets information that belongs to you, such as credit card number, social security number, or otherwise, and they can wreak great havoc with it if they have a mind to do so. And there are other ways in which we appreciate identity is very carefully guarded. I suppose it's fair to say all of us watch very carefully and are very proud in many ways of the identity that we do enjoy and have. What if we apply that today to the church? That is to say, what if we ask about some simple applications of that same principle to that blessed body of Christ? And so at the bottom of that slide, as we strive to do that, we'll look at a number of features about that identity. Let's set the stage for this opening comment, though, if we might. It really begs a question. A question, if you would wish to do so, about the, the nature of that identity. After all, as we think about the church, there are several facts I would ask us to consider. Fact number one, the church of which the New Testament speaks, there is a rather definitive and a very definite truth among other things about it is this. In the United States, there are literally hundreds of religious organizations that in fact go beneath the banner of a church. They're religious in character, obviously. There are various assemblies concerning the fact of which things are done in the name of the roadway it is supposed to heaven. And as all of that takes place, that number is, of course, growing very rapidly. Worldwide, there appears to now be well over 33,000 denominations or at least religious bodies that are called churches. All of that, though, leads us to note this. Among those various religious bodies... They claim to follow the same Lord. They claim to follow the same book. They claim to have a desire, in fact, to proceed to the same destiny or location, namely heaven. But yet, in many ways, what's taught is different. One group teaches one thing, and another one teaches something completely different. And yet, they claim to follow the same book. May I ask you to notice that whole thought, that whole matter is an inconsistent thing relative to the Word of God. I would ask you to notice 1 Corinthians 1 verse number 10. Near the very outset of that 1 Corinthians epistle, Paul in fact directly said, encouraging those brethren, 
I beseech you in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that ye all speak the same thing, and that there be no divisions among you, but that ye be perfectly joined together in the same mind and the same judgment. There was to be a unity characteristic of what they stood for in the matter in which they applied it. A unity that touched not only the matter of judgment, but it touched what they taught. It touched the reality of what it was that they asserted. There was not to be that division. It is true, isn't it, that with that in mind, that wasn't the only congregation to which Paul gave those kinds of assertions. In Romans 15, 6, the church in Rome was to be such that with the same mind and the same mouth they were to proclaim allegiance to and fidelity to the truth of God. Isn't it true then that we find not only in those verses, but yea, some of these additional ones, that there is but one church for which the blood of Christ was shed. Just one. When Paul, of course, gave that dissertation on unity in, in Ephesians chapter 4, he began it with this thought, there is one body. There is one. It matters not what the human family may think, and it matters not what individuals may surmise. The God of heaven said there is but one. As you and I give thought to the unity, the oneness of that truth, you'll notice that immediately three chapters earlier, Paul identified what he meant by the word body. As you and I make that correspondence, may, may we appreciate the seriousness of it. He said that that body is the church. And having put all things under His feet, and gave Him to be head over all things to the church which is His body, the fullness of Him that filleth all in all. It therefore follows that when Paul said there is but one body, he said there is one church. Or maybe you and I could rather with great affirmation say that the Holy Spirit said this. Now you and I again notice that today we live in a society, a culture, and it isn't new to us, but nonetheless it's, a, it's an occurrent thing. When there are hundreds, yea, thousands of religious organizations, and the Lord said He promised to build one, that unity would, in fact, lead us to notice as the rest of this lesson develops. The identity of the church becomes vital. It is, in fact, an internally serious matter, isn't it? We must be able to identify it. One last verse on that particular slide. The last one to which I would point you is the lesson text that you and I had read in our hearing just a moment ago. John read from Colossians 1, verse number 18. Sometimes it's often been said that the book of Colossians is a four-chapter book that surrounds the topic of the Christ of the church. Paul takes it for appreciation that there is an existent thing known as the church, and yet in this book he develops the premise that Jesus is the very center of it. In every way, in everything, He is its center. You and I might well imagine it like this. With regard to a wheel, there's an axle. There may be spokes that link that axle to the extremity of the wheel, but the center of it is the, is the axle. Everything revolves around the center. It should be that way for my life and yours. And it certainly must be that way for the church. What then about the identity of the church? 
let's then look at several additional facts revealed in the New Testament about that identity. And as we do so, it's our goal to pinpoint, to appreciate it. And one by one, fact number two is this one. The builder, or if we were to say that differently, the head. Now, when you and I give contemplation to, again, this blessed body known as the church, one of the identifying characteristics that is so very valuable is to note this, who built it? As the slide starts, the builder of the organization of which we speak today is very clearly taught, isn't it? Jesus Himself in the coast of Caesarea Philippi, when He was asked, He made this remark, I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Jesus very definitively and also very unambiguously taught that, I will build my church. No human built it. No group of individuals, in fact, designed it, set forth its bylaws or any such matter. He Himself built it. You'll notice furthermore on that slide, several times in the wonderful pages of the New Testament, Jesus is described in various ways relative to that body. In Ephesians 2 verse 20, He, that's Christ, is the chief cornerstone. Everything then is built in such a way that it leans directly upon that. Furthermore, in 1 Peter 2 verse 6, that chief cornerstone is used again to identify that that chief cornerstone which once the builders thought to reject, and the Jews did reject Him, God has made Him the head of the corner. Furthermore, on that same slide, our blessed Savior is the one and only foundation. Paul told the Corinthians that in 1 Corinthians 3.11. At this point, perhaps you and I can easily note some conclusions, some immediate consequences. And so there at the bottom of that slide, inasmuch as the Lord Jesus is the one and only head of that church which heaven will identify that leads to a pertinent question today who then is the founder who is the builder of church a of church b if it was john wesley if it was john calvin if it was the pope doesn't matter it's not the right builder it is not the direct and right head according to the very premise of the Word of God. And therefore, there's an immediate consideration of elimination of so very many. It is important to be very honest, it would seem to me, in this matter. And isn't it sad that it seems that that degree of honesty is sometimes not wholly, wholly present? Fact number two, after having given thought to the builder and the head, Let's look at yet another one. In addition to this, fact number three, you'll notice on this slide, what about the specifics of the establishment touching that body? Now you and I are well aware that a particular institution such as the church, it had a definitive beginning. There was a moment of origin. There was a time before which we appreciate it didn't exist and yet after which it did exist. With regard to the church, again, we are not left in the New Testament to wonder about these matters. In the inspired history of the New Testament, you and I can pinpoint the church's establishment with clarity. 
I've tried to highlight it very quickly. Jesus spoke of it with such grandeur. He's taught in Luke 24, 49. To those apostles, you tarry in Jerusalem until you receive or that you're endued with power from on high. Those apostles, now remember the Lord had already been crucified by that point, and furthermore, He'd already been resurrected. And yet in those few weeks period, He told them, you stay in Jerusalem. Where were they to stay? Jerusalem. Now as Acts chapter 1 comes before us, they were in Jerusalem just exactly as the Lord taught them to be. And in verses 11 and 12, that very location again is highlighted and as the next chapter opens, it's that chapter in which we find the marvelous matter of the church's establishment. By the time Acts chapter 2 closes, it says the Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. The church was now in existence. Where did it start? Jerusalem. So notice it wasn't London, it wasn't Rome, it wasn't Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, or anywhere else. And so in all honesty, if you and I were to inquire of an individual of whom we have conversation, where did this church begin of which you're a part? And if it wasn't Jerusalem, you and I have an opportunity to help them learn the truth. Jerusalem, but what else? What about the timing of it? When did it begin? Well, one more time on that same slide. We've already noted that there was a statement about the fact that they were to wait in Jerusalem. And yet you and I know that the Lord had just died, of course, there at the crucifixion scene. This was the year 30 A.D. And it was on Pentecost of that same year. It was on Pentecost when those Jews were assembled and gathered in Jerusalem as the Old Testament had commanded... And it was there when that beautiful scene of Acts chapter 2 develops. Where? When? We notice it was the first Pentecost after the Lord's resurrection. Any organization then that doesn't trace its origin to that point in time cannot be the right organization. And so as you and I have noted earlier, often in our studies... The various denominations of our world started over 1,500 years after the events of Acts chapter 2. And so when one gives thought to the various organizations such as the Baptist Church or the Methodist or yea, a number of others, they all started with the work of men who lived 1,500 years this side of the day of Pentecost. That's a very overwhelming thought, isn't it? You and I, in the strong desire of our heart, would wish to be a part of that body the blessed Savior originated. And so we must go back long before the, the denominational scenes of the 15 or 1600s. You'll notice as that slide comes to its close, even the Old Testament had prophesied as to when all those things would happen. And you and I cannot set aside history Isaiah prophesied when it would be, Isaiah 2, verses 1 to 3. So too did Micah, Micah 4, verses 1 to 4. Joel spoke of it, did he not, in Joel 2, 28. One by one, as we look at all of those, they came to fruition during the scenes of Acts chapter 2. May we never forget the fact that it was Peter who in Acts 2, 16 said, This is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. What Joel had prophesied is the very thing that came to fruition, and it was that lovely scene in which the very Spirit of God would fill the events of that day. 
It may be then in light of those things as we close that slide, that was a very specific point in place and time. Talk about a powerful matter of identity. What about the next fact? Fact number four. As we look at all those facts, this one comes before us in the following way. What about the name? I'd submit to you that we're all very accustomed to contemplating the significance of name. Your parents and mine bequeathed us with a name at the time that we were born. And that name is something of which we're proud and if we're wise, we strive to live highly with regard to it. We try to leave that name better off than perhaps it was when we received it. But you'll notice the name of the church is also something referenced within the pages of the New Testament. At the top, Aren't we told to do everything by the authority of Jesus? Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father by Him. As surely as that text is found in Colossians 3.17, we can now make an interesting set of applications, consequences to the sweetness of the name. The exact phrase, the church, occurs over 70 times in the pages of the New Testament. It's clear then that those original writers, they had in mind a body, the body. And as they referred to it, it was clear about the nature and the characteristics of it. And so when Paul would write to the Colossians or the Philippians or the Thessalonians and he referenced the church, there were no misgivings about what he meant. There were no misunderstandings about that at all. Not only that, doesn't it then seem natural to to want to choose a name that God would approve of, a name that would be in keeping with His presentation. I think we'd each readily agree to that. If we wish to please God, we would want to choose a name for that body of His Son that, that would be a name that He would approve of. The churches of Christ salute you, Romans 16, 16. That's surely then one name recognizing the fact of who that church belongs to. And that word church, of course, highlights that wonderful nature of that body that has such eternal destiny and character to it. Not only that, look at some additional names. It's clear that there are more names than just that one. Paul referenced the church of God at Corinth, 1 Corinthians 1 verse 1. There was the church of God at Thessalonica, 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 1. Those two would be reasonable names to pick, but today we have to be careful. It could be that there are individuals who, in fact, are using that name who have chosen not to remain faithful, true to the development of the Word of God. Our desire would be to select a name, a name that would be in keeping with the Word of God. But not only should the thought of the name be significant, look at also what follows. I'd like to know about the bylaws. I'd like to know about the doctrine of your organization. Where do you get it? Where does it come from? I've listed that beneath the title of a manual. So what's the manual that gives the instruction for your organization? You and I know the New Testament has been very clear. Our development of that would be like this. The New Testament has identified but one manual. Of course, it's the New Testament. 
when you and I ask then about that, the things of men won't suffice. No man, no matter how scholarly, no matter how sincere he may have been, he's not inspired if he live, of course, this side, this side of the, in the age of inspiration. Surely then it follows that we want a church, the manual of which is nothing more or less and nothing else than the New Testament. In fact, as you'll notice in verses like these, Consider with me what Jesus commissioned His apostles to preach. In Matthew 28, beginning in verse 18, we hear again and again these words, All power hath been given to me in heaven and in earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you all the way, even unto the end of the world. Now, Jesus, what were they to teach? What I've commanded you. They never had any authority to teach anything else. They never had any authority to replace that with anything else. It was what the Lord had taught them, and that, of course, is in His last will and testament. That's a clear and powerful matter about the identity of the church, isn't it? And therefore, any manual of man that would immediately be a red flag that all isn't well. Not only that passage, consider 2 Timothy 3.16, where there we notice that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. What is the source of instruction? Paul said it's the inspired Scriptures. Anything else then must be an error. May I submit, as simple as those ideas may appear, they nonetheless are very vital because they are critical matters in identifying the church. Finally, you might notice in Acts 17, 11, when Paul on the second missionary journey had come to Berea, it says, These were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched what? It was the Scriptures. Now, as you and I appreciate those Old and New Testament Scriptures, aren't we honored and blessed to have the fullness of the 27 New Testament ones before us today? Surely then, this too is another vital consequence of the identity of the church. Maybe in finality to that slide, we can note this. There were commandments and statements made within the pages of the New Testament that they were never to go beyond that inspired manual. 1 Corinthians 4, 6, as well as 2 John 9 and 10, both point out to us that there was a rather rigid boundary, and those faithful to the Lord would not step beyond it. Aren't you and I thankful to be able to do that still today? To understand that there is a limiting boundary, and those faithful to the Lord are contented and happy within the confines of that boundary. Surely, as our study of fact 4 and 5 has brought us to this point, let's look at fact 6. What else might be utilized to appreciate and to note the identity of the church? Fact number 6, the organization. I placed that one in this order because it seemed to follow so naturally fact number 5. What do we mean by the organization? You're probably aware with me that the human family often has some very clear ideas about what a supposedly good organization is. 
And may I suggest in many ways it follows from ancient times. The organization of government, the organization in many ways of, of the various clubs and, and appreciations of men. Consider the Lord's church. What's its organization? I suppose many could offer a good idea. What if we had a body of representatives and a body that is a senate to our organization? What if we had a judiciary group such that they could in fact ratify or make the laws the others could legislate? That's how our federal government's set up. There's a legislative branch, a judicial branch, an executive branch. What if we pattern the church somehow like it? The United States has stood for... Well, over 240 years now. I suppose many would think that'd be an excellent idea. May I submit to you that'd be an awful idea. The organization of the church has been laid down in detail, and the head himself determined it. It didn't left to us to organize it. It didn't left to us to find some new way to present it. May I submit to you, the organization is such that it has only one head. Now, quite frankly, there's again a good time for honesty there. There are many in our world who'd say, Oh, indeed, there is but one head in heaven, but we also have a head on earth, you see. Now, the New Testament knows nothing of that. There is one head, period. Didn't Colossians 1.18 say, He is the head of the body, the church. Notice Paul doesn't go on to say that there's opportunity for a second head or a group of bishops or cardinals or advisors of any form. There's one head. That organization thus leads us to note the following, and isn't it a blessing? Jesus Himself has delegated in local congregations authority to be vested in men known as elders. Now these men do not act in any way independent of Jesus. They are given authority only to do what the Lord has delegated and provided for them to do. Titus 1 verses 8 and 9, as it lists the qualifications of elders, it makes specific mention that they are to be sound in the faith and they are to uphold sound doctrine and furthermore that they are to teach those things to others. Surely in light of that, we can then notice these elders are merely shepherds who serve beneath the chief shepherd. 1 Peter 5 verse 4. They are not to act in any way independently of them. Jesus has delegated to them the blessed opportunity, though, to rule over that local congregation. And isn't it true as you think about that local congregation? Each one of them is autonomous. Every one of them is autonomous. Now, that's a fancy word, but it simply means each one of them is individually responsible to the head. No congregation will answer for any other, and no congregation is such that it rules over any other one. The Lord Jesus made a powerful statement about that rule which could permit faithfulness to be maintained. I would ask you to again contemplate just how unique that is compared to the way men would do it. Men seemingly like there to be rulership. And you can easily imagine how it happened in history. This congregation has its elders, and so too does this one. But wouldn't it be great, some would say, what if we had another man who in fact could supervise both of them? 
This one could be more efficient. This one could, in fact, develop plans and schemes whereby perhaps more work for the Lord could be done. That's unscriptural. It might sound good to men, but that's not the Lord's plan. You can also imagine how easy it would be for false doctrine to be promoted that way. If that man who was the head over both of them came to have unscriptural views and matters that were not well appreciated, he could teach it to them and he could corrupt two congregations, or yea, many others in addition. That plan, you see, was never a part of the organization of the church of our Lord. Every congregation is individually responsible to the head. And as such, you and I can complete that slide by noting there are many references to these autonomous congregations in the New Testament. I would call to your attention Acts 14, verses 22 and 23. Paul established those congregations in Asia Minor and there were elders appointed in every city. Notice, there wasn't one elder over all the congregations in Asia Minor. And when Paul addressed Titus, in Titus 1 verse 5, he too was told to ordain elders again in all of the locations. There wasn't one elder for the whole island of Crete. Isn't that interesting? May I submit to you, men wouldn't have done it that way. But in His infinite wisdom, God did. And aren't we thankful? Perhaps finally, you might might notice with me in Philippians 1 verse 1, that beautiful example of the church in Philippi, in which there we notice Paul addressed that congregation and he made specific mention of their elders and their deacons. Notice it wasn't elders from a different place ruling over them or deacons in a different place serving particularly for them. It was the beautiful uniqueness of the church in Philippi. As we close that slide, and also fact number six, what about fact number seven? What else could we use to identify this church? May I submit to you that the worship would also be a vital part of that identification. What does this body do as a part of its worship? Is it consistent with the New Testament? Has there been anything added? We know the New Testament authorizes but five acts of worship as those would gather on the Lord's day, that of which we now do, namely a study of the Word of God, the participation in the Lord's Supper, giving as we've been prospered, singing, and also praying. And as we conclude that list, that exhausts everything, and therefore we can use that too as a very powerful matter. Does this group hold true to that which was the identifying characteristic of worship? You might notice with me a whole listing of those things at the top where there are verses that list those things we just noted. Surely in light of all those things, you know even our music as we studied last Sunday morning, We aren't given the authority to change that, to add anything to it. It might well be, in light of that, how sweet it is to think about the simplicity of New Testament worship. Although the ages of time may come and go, cultures may change significantly, attributes and details may bear little resemblance, but the basic nature of worship hasn't changed for 2,000 years now. If it's correct, Scripture worship, seems to me it could be very exciting to suppose that this very moment, this very morning, there are people all around the globe of earth who have worshipped or soon will 
and they've done exactly the same thing we've done. They've worshipped in truth and in spirit, John 4.24. They have simply followed the pattern given in the pages of the New Testament. And the reason is that each one knows that that's what God has authorized. And that's the very thing to which we can give our greatest allegiance. Worship is a great identifying characteristic, isn't it? As you come near the close of that slide, may I submit that many of our day no doubt would wish to alter or change it as it relates to female leadership in worship. It's important to notice, it seems to me, that that's another vital point that is really making some interesting challenges for the church of our day. Many times women are very intelligent. Many times they're very good speakers. Could a lady feel this pulpit and perhaps do so with eloquence and a message that's powerful? Well, no doubt there would probably be any that could. But the issue is not that. The issue is, has the Lord Jesus delegated that to be a part of worship that's pleasing to Him? And under the banner of 1 Timothy 2, verses 8 through 15, the answer is no. And so it is, as you and I desire to be faithful to the Lord, we wish to simply do what pleases Him, that which is a part of His body. As we seek to identify it, let's come to the next and in fact, the final fact. And then the lesson will be yours. One by one, as we have looked at all of these things, we have, of course, asked, what things might I use to identify the church of which I read in the New Testament? And there have been many truths, and the last one is this one. How do I become a member of that body? Maybe in some cases there might be a delegation or a group that would cast a vote and with a proper vote I'd be admitted. Maybe in other cases it has to do with the relation of an experience. Can I give testimony to the fact the Holy Spirit has worked in my life in some way? And so I make a public speech. The interesting thing is I read about that nowhere in all the New Testament. Nowhere. May I say though the New Testament does speak about this. Those that were added to the church did so in Acts 2.47. Notice they were added to it by Jesus. The Lord added them. There was no group of people that gave voice to vote. There was no group of people that cast lot relative to it. And surely in light of that, we notice this. It was accomplished as a result of their obedience to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what happened on the day of Pentecost. It says, Then they that gladly received His word were baptized, and there were added unto them that day about 3,000 souls. Notice, after the baptism was when the addition took place. At that moment. Isn't that beautiful? This very day when you and I have the pleasure and the great privilege of witnessing a person being baptized into Christ. You realize when they entered that water, they weren't a member of the body. When they came out of it, they were. And it wasn't that our elders or myself or whoever did the baptizing had anything to say about that. Jesus did it. It's His church. It's His body. And He has determined and dictated fully the, 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 the terms of entrance. It may be in light of those things you'll notice that salvation then as it occurs at that moment of baptism, that's an occasion of great rejoicing. And it's an occasion for great celebration. 
as we close that slide and also our lesson. The identity of the church is eternally important because to arrive at the day of judgment, having been a part of some organization unauthorized by Jesus, unknown to Him, one shouldn't expect that entrance to heaven will be granted. For the Lord Himself taught in Matthew fifteen thirteen that He would pull up or root up every plant that His heavenly Father had never planted. In the context, the Lord was speaking about organizations unauthorized by Him and unknown to Him. Don't you want to be a member and a faithful one at that to the body of Christ? The one identified in the New Testament? It may be in the sound of my voice today that there is one or more that's not a faithful member of that body. You realize that the identification has been given and don't you want it once to become or to in fact to come back to your once faithfulness in that body. The plan of salvation is to those who are alien sinners, believe in Jesus, repent of your sins, confess His name and be baptized. And if we could assist you in that today, what a marvelous day it'd be for you. If you need to come back to your first love, we'd be honored to help you there too. All you must do is confess and repent of those sins known publicly, invite us to pray to God on your behalf, and we'll be honored to do that. The identity of the church is significant. May we be thankful the identity has been given, and may we be thankful we can follow it. If anyone today might be subject to the gospel call of invitation in a public way, why not come now while we stand and while we sing?